Discussions of truth. Coming up on the four-year mark uh, of doing this program. Started out in Winwood District of Miami, and uh, continue to uh, continue to grow. And never before could it be more prevalent, folks, that in in all governments. Globally, uh, there is corruption, there's lies, there's deceit. And I think it's, in large part, it's the way people choose to live their lives. And uh, uh, in the United States here, we have unprecedented times. Uh, shout out, if you will, to the folks in Berlin for standing up for what they believe. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who I invited to join the program. Let's see if he comes on. I know he's an incredibly busy person. Um, but, uh, you know, basically, uh, Berlin, London, Slovenia, I believe, um, we've got folks, large numbers of folks, they're standing up against the mask tirade. Uh, you know, I mean, look, you can kind of pick what you want. You wear a mask, don't wear a mask. That's my personal feeling. You want to you wanna wear a hazmat suit, protect yourself from COVID-19. I, and this is what's interesting in that, irrelevant really, in that I started this program because of the Zika virus in Miami in 2016. And here we've got in 2020, four years later, we've got, we've got the, uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Um, Zika was and is a relatively benign virus. It was discovered in the 1940s from a monkey, and then it made an appearance. I mean, it had made various appearances around the world, but very small, minute cases, and then, boom, it makes an appearance in Brazil, in Recife, and then in Miami. What, you know, what, what are the things that are going on under the very surface levels? Now, in another... Note, Freedom Reserved, No More Lies is a book that, that has been basically written now for over two years. Uh, it's a book that I wrote. I urge you to buy it. Go to freedomreserved.com. You can buy it there. Um, right now, it's on pre-order through Barnes & Noble. The, the publisher, uh, the projected agreed upon publishers trying day um, I'm just gonna say right now that book describes financial relations and ties to the Zika virus and the pesticide that was used called Nalid the timeliness could not be more perfect for it to be published. It was scheduled to be published in May. It was pushed back to July. Now it's facing a October release date. Um, that release 
should have happened in May. We'll see if it gets released in October from this publisher. It's four months. And uh, anyway, evidently there are a few errors uh, that I'll go over and get that through. And uh, if, if the current agreement with the publisher stands, then it'll be published in October. Uh, if there's a retraction, then the publication thereof will likely be picked up by a different publisher. But that'll be, that'll be coming forward in the next little while. Anyway, just letting you know that there are a few kinks that I'm working on. I'm, a, I'm, I'm somewhat disappointed that it's taken this long. Uh, like I said, that was supposed to be published in May. Uh, there are the two factors that are stalling it. And that have, that, those have just come to my awareness today. That A, there's a question of whether it's the appropriate timing, and then B, there seem to be errors. Okay, errors are one thing, those can be edited. Timeliness, it should have been published in May. Easy, 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 no question about that. So, working on that right now, and if it needs to find a different home, it will find a different home. Freedomreserve.com. You can, you can order it right now. I am Ian Trache. This is Discuss the Truth. I'm typically here at the 5 o'clock hour, but I have been starting earlier, Eastern Time, PM. I have been starting, er starting earlier, um, and that, that, is, uh, that, that, that is written on Discuss the Truth. Today, today we've got a great show for you. Uh, Tom Hartman making his third appearance on the program. Um, and we'll be discussing his current release, which is The Hidden History of Monopolies. How Big Business Destroy the American Dream. New York Times bestselling author Tom Hartman. Uh, and let me just read this quick briefing. Um, he actually has the support of Leonardo DiCaprio. Tom Hartman seeks out interesting subjects from such disparate outposts of curiosity. They have to wonder whether or not he uncovered them or they selected him. He's also got a quote. He's been quoted by Van Jones, CNN political contrib contributor, and also John Perkins, who is a former guest on this program. Uh, John Perkins, uh, author of The New Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Treating the cancer of mon American monopolies, while it's well known that billionaire oligarchs and giant corporations have waged war against poor and working class Americans since the Reagan Revolution, less well known is their war against small and medium-sized businesses. Robert Bork, a racist, toxic Reagan acolyte, succeeded in transforming the nature and enforcement of America's anti monopoly laws, convincing both Congress and Supreme Court justices that his pro-monopoly vision was the best way to go. The result is a shattered business landscape. The average family paying an annual $5,000 monopoly tax and higher prices for everything from airline flights to pharmaceuticals and a massive increase in corporate political power. The coronavirus pandemic has only made things worse. The American business landscape and the American middle class will return to health only when Reaganism and Borkism are finally reversed. Um, and look, the book is compiled of uh, three parts, 171 pages. Let's get in a little bit to uh, Tom himself. Uh, Tom is a four-time Project Censored award-winning author, New York Times bestselling author of more than 205 books, uh, uh, not all New York Times bestsellers. Uh, currently in print over a dozen languages and five continents and fields of psychiatry, ecology, politics, and economics, and the number one progressive talk show host in the United States. He has a daily three-hour program. I, I go uh, weekly, Wednesdays, of course, uh, 5 o'clock. PM Eastern Standard typically. Um, so, 
anyway, folks, what I urge you is to go go into my website, iantrotier.com. I-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. Uh, and, and, and click on the Articles tab. There you'll find uh, links to a number of incredibly important uh, books. Uh, Anthony Cyril Sutton, Stanford Hoover Fellow, um, Charlotte Eisenbitt. Um, I'm not sure that the, the book is, is available. Charlotte's book is available via PDF, but... Uh, Anthony's books certainly are. National Suicide is one of the the, the uh, titles. Military Aid to the Soviet Union. Uh, the War on Gold. Uh, again, Anthony Sutton. How about uh, the Federal Reserve Conspiracy? How the Order Controls Education? You know that 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 catchword, right? That 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 uh, that phrase conspiracy right it's it's a people throw that word around to make um, to make people you know seem like they're nuts right well you're so far-fetched your ideas but but isn't that really simply a censorship on people's thoughts right that's exactly what it is uh, people leaving uh, being labeled uh, conspiratical or theoretical okay theory is one thing Conspiracy is another thing. Conspiracy is, is is typically aimed at harming someone, but it, but you know those two words combined um, isn't that isn't that really censorship on on somebody's thought? So it's meant to discourage the independent thinker from thinking outside the box. Really, is what it is. Really, that's that's what it is. Uh, in my view, uh, cons. Fire, conspiracy. I mean, there's there's conspiracies in governments left and right through organizations. You're looking at let's look at look at let's look at Antifa right now. Antifa is a militant organization, aren't they? They've been declared by the White House to be uh, a terrorist organization. But what's interesting here is are they conspiring to do something? Absolutely, they're conspiring to destroy the nation. They make no bones about it. They want to completely redevelop this country, tear it down, rebuild it. That's what they want to do, uh, and they're they're trying to do that. They're starting with Portland, Seattle. Uh, but what's interesting is the BLM movement, which I was initially a supporter of, before I began seeing how that they were not peaceful in their demonstrations, and the two seemed to be intertwined. BLM and Antifa movement seemed to be intertwined. So if if they are intertwined, should the BLM movement also be labeled a terrorist organization? Uh, okay, sure. I'm a white man, so because I'm white, I'm, I'm a racist. No, absolutely not. It doesn't. That doesn't mean. It doesn't mean I'm racist at all. Uh, and it just so happens that a like a Black Panther type movement that I equate the BLM movement to because it has Oakland ties, California. Well. As a matter of fact, so do I. Okay, I have ties to that city as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, happens to be the place of my birth. Okay, so um, yeah, just because a organization has a has a name to it doesn't mean it correctly represents their agenda, i.e., the Federal Reserve. Is the Federal Reserve federal? What does the word federal mean? Does it represent the U.S. federal organization? Well, yes, it does, but is it is it literally a government organization? No, it's not. It's a private banking institution. So, hopefully we'll have Trine Day pick the book up. They've 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 agreed to. Let's hope they remain. Uh, they they that the agreement rain, remains intact in October. We'll have the release date. You can pre-order right now on Barnes and Noble. Uh, that's a developing situation that I've just uh, made uh, aware of uh, after a few months 
of uh, of of a few months of not really understanding why he's being pushed back. Now I know why he's been pushed back. So, okay, um, Tom Hartman. Tom Hartman. Now uh, we'll bring him on. We're bringing Tom Hartman on to join the program. He'll be joining us now for the third time. This is discussion of truth. Uh, you are tuned in, listening to uh, Winwood One Miami Radio. Hello? Mr. Tom Hartman, how are you? It's Ian Trottier for Discussion to Truth, sir. I am well. How are you, Ian? Nice to reconnect with you. Uh, I'm doing I'm doing well. I'm doing about as well as I uh, have projected to be doing. We've got since we last spoke, we've got quite a different uh, a different world moving it seems at this time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um so Tom, uh, the hidden history of monopolies how big business destroyed the American dream. Um, this is your, this is the fourth installment of your series. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And let's let's get into that a little bit because I think, you know, the average, the average American, uh, the average listener, uh, is likely going to equate the word monopoly to the most famous family. Likely, okay, this is coming from my opinion. Uh, the, likely, the most one of the most famous American families. I'd be the Rockefeller, and that would be uh, Standard Oil. Sure. Um, go ahead, Tom. What, what what is it that you what 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 drove you? And, and by the way, for listeners to understand, the foreword uh, has been delivered by by Ralph Nader. Let's go from there. Let Let's go from there, Tom. Uh, what? Sure. In, go ahead. No, if you ask a question, I'm sorry. Um, what? What? Let me. So let me let me insert this. Um, and there's there's three parts to this book. Let me insert this. Uh, in Tom, in, in 1912, uh, Standard Oil was Standard Oil was was uh, broken up uh, under an anti the anti uh, trust uh, agreement. It was broken up. It was dissolved. Into, uh, 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 I think it's thirty-seven different companies. Um, such companies that sprang from that, um, and again, we're, we're basically what I'm doing to kind of set the table is I'm uh, basically taking uh, uh, Standard Oil as an example um, uh, of a monopoly. Um, so. Chevron is a gas company that sprang from Standard Oil. Um, Exxon is another company that sprang from uh, 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 Standard Oil. Um, Mobile. So these are all companies that are massive. They're massive petroleum companies. Um, but what caught my interest, Tom, what caught my interest was a publication I read a few years ago out of uh, a study that had been done at Cal Berkeley was that the uh, the Rockefeller Foundation was formed as a result primarily my understanding of the stand the, the 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 dissolving of Standard Oil yet the Rockefeller Foundation retained majority ownership of I think seven of those smaller companies that broke from Standard Oil. Um, so what seemed to be a uh, the breakup of a monopoly, um, by most accounts or most interpretations, only, uh, only made the organization that had once controlled the Standard Oil monopoly more powerful. That's something you want to comment on. Well, I, your uh, your knowledge of Standard Oil pre and post breakup uh, exceeds mine, and I I, I I can't give you the that kind of granular detail. What I can tell you is that uh, monopoly is cancer within capitalism. 
Um, it was identified as such by Adam Smith in 1776 in Wealth of Nations, um, uh, David Ricardo uh, in the early 1800s, uh, repeatedly, actually. I mean, you know, modern capitalism is fairly, fairly recent. Uh, the first modern corporation was chartered on December uh, 31st of 1601 by Queen Elizabeth I. It was the British East India Company, and, and which had become the monopoly that basically controlled America. So, you know, we defeated that monopoly and the country that was supporting it in the Revolutionary War and didn't really see the rise of monopoly again until the late 1800s in, in the United States. And, you know, part of that was Standard Oil or Rockefeller's uh, organization. Part of that was Andrew Carnegie and the steel uh, monopoly, uh, the DuPont uh, explosives or chemical monopoly, uh, the Dow chem the explosives monopoly, uh, you know, uh, the Gould's railroad monopoly. I mean, it just went on and on and on. Uh, the Morgan banking monopoly. And so uh, Congress passed the Sherman Act in 1890 saying that, you know, these things were illegal, but they, there was not a president who was willing to enforce that law until 1905 and uh, or really 1904. And that was the result of Teddy Roosevelt's reelection campaign or election campaign. He had come into office in 1901 when McKinley was assassinated. And um, he was he was a fairly rich guy from New York, and he was heavily criticized um, for taking money from his buddies and from commerce. And so, and it stung him so badly that he became a real champion of antitrust laws and the Tillman Act, which was passed in 1907, that made it a felony for any federal, any corporation to give money to any candidate for federal office. And he initiated the breakup of Standard Oil that was finished by William Howard Taft. And, you know, the whole point of it, I mean, you know, monopoly in essence is uh, a, a business organization or system designed to eliminate or suppress competition. And that's certainly what all those guys were up to. And the whole point of the Sherman Act was to reintroduce competition by breaking companies up so that small and medium sized companies could compete with them and or new innovators and, and people in the marketplace. And, and you know, we we had. And arguably still have, you know, well, up until the 1980s, monopolies, but nothing like we had seen in the late 1800s um, until 1982. And uh, the last meaningful enforcement of the antitrust laws was uh, under Nixon when Nixon ordered AT&T to be broken up. And Jimmy Carter finished that job in 1978 or 79. And then uh, in 1982, Reagan said, OK, we're just not going to enforce these laws anymore. You know, screw it. We're not going to do it. And um, we have not enforced the Sherman Act, the Clayton Act, or the Antitrust Act of 1956 in any meaningful way since then. And as a result of that, we are now in the cancer stage of capitalism. We have every major industry in the United States is monopolized by typically three to five corporations that operate in concert. Uh, we're all familiar with how you know, if Delta raises their prices 10 bucks, United does the same thing within five seconds. Um, you know, they, they function as a monopoly. And you find this, you know, across every sector. And, uh, you know, the result is that it's gotten harder and harder for small and medium-sized businesses to even get started, much less compete. And the average American is paying a $5,000 a year, essentially a tax. We pay it to corporations, not to the government. Uh, for monopoly, we pay higher prices for everything. We pay twice the price that uh, Europeans do for internet service. We pay two to three times the price for cell phone service. We pay two to five times the price for cable TV service. We pay more than 100% more than any other developed country in the world does for pharmaceuticals. Uh, we pay a little more than two and a half times as much as anybody else in the world for hospitalization. And in some cases, as much as 20 times as much. Um, so, you know, it just goes on and on and on. I mean, pick your pick your industry. And yeah. it's basically draining wealth out of the pockets of working class Americans and putting it into the pockets of the top 1%. Tom, it's great to have you back on the program. You're, you're such a wealth of knowledge. Let me ask this. Um, is a cancer of... Monopoly is a cancer of capitalism? Yeah, here's a way to think of it. Um, you know, yeah. our bodies are constantly uh, producing mutated cells that are, are dysfunctional and occasionally cancerous. And our immune system catches those cells and destroys them. It's just a routine part of life. 
Um, but every now and then one of those cells would get past our immune system and set up house and start multiplying like crazy and saying, it's all mine. I am going to take all the energy <laughs> from this body. I'm going to redirect all the blood into my cells. <laughs> and it gets larger and larger and larger. And, and you know, the person gets small, <laughs> shrinks and, and withers away and eventually dies from the cancer. Well, that's a perfect metaphor for, in fact, it's a perfect description of the way that monopoly works in the business world. And so that's why I say, you know, monopoly is, is a cancer to, to capitalism, just like real cancer is a cancer to our bodies. Now, pharmaceutical, uh, the pharmaceutical industry, and in part three of your book, Monopoly and Pharma, Big, big Private Profits, Publicly Granted Patents, um, are you familiar with the work of Gerald Posner, Tom? Yeah, he's written a whole bunch of books, including one about the Kennedy assassination. So, so Gerald, Gerald is a guest on the program. Uh, it's been it's been a few months now, a um, couple months. Uh, his latest book is called Pharma: Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America. Um, you know, oh, pharma. Him. Go ahead. Well, I said good on him. He, Gerald Posner is a good guy. He's a good. He's a good writer. Yeah, and he's based. I think part part of the time he's based there in, in South Beach. Um, yeah, it was. It's it's really it's an eight hundred page, uh, very meticulously documented book that really destroys the pharmaceutical industry. Um, you know, now you've got the current administration that's trying to maneuver costs. These, like you're saying, these inflated costs on pharmaceutical uh, products. Um, but let's let. I want to get back to. Uh, monopoly theoretically um, uh, where does it really come from you, you know you're talking about the uh, East India Company um, the former British Empire um, these are these are elements these are trading elements um, uh, business elements that were uh, acquired by the early settlers and how they ran their companies in the United States, I, I like the analogy that you, you just made uh, with the human anatomy. Um, you know what can what can Americans do uh, to fend off this this, this kind of mon monopolistic type tyranny in business? And and what I'll do is I want to read an excerpt from the foreword that Ralph Nader uh, provides uh, for this for this. Uh, installment of your series today giant corporatism the commercialism of just about everything at the expense of our civilization's civic spiritual health and safety values and other conditions needed for the well-being of future generations confronting poverty addressing planetary climate crisis and the averting nuclear war so that's a pretty strong word but of course it's a uh, it's a threat is crushing our key word here democracy he further continues Ralph says it is corrupting our elections and astonishingly enough controlling the vast commons public lands public airwaves vast pension and mutual funds and industry creating government funded research and development that are all owned by the people so I'll step back from that uh, Tom and I'll, and I'll think and I'll say hey let me ask a question now is the Federal Reserve, which basically supports the United States as a uh, insurance policy, if you will, for its uh, its its economy, that's the way I look at it. Is it in itself a monopoly? What do you think, Tom? What would you What do you say to that? Well, the Fed has monopoly power over the U.S. money supply, but the money supply is a natural monopoly. Uh, the, you know which is the province of government. I mean, uh, you wouldn't want competing companies offering the money supply of the country any more than you'd want competing companies on a for-profit basis offering your fire service or your police service. Uh, you know, that, that, that falls into the realm of natural monopolies. But what I would say is that, you know, to, to extend a metaphor or use another metaphor, um, number one, business didn't just, you know, come out of God's mouth or something. I mean, you know, the way that we do business yeah. is not some natural law or some natural force. Um, business is a game, just like football is a game. And in a, in a game of football, uh, you, have, uh, you have a rule book, which is uh, agreed upon by all the players. 
and then you have uh, referees that enforce that rule book. And if the rules of football were changed, let's say that, uh, you know, uh, one particular team were to get really, really rich and bought the league or bought, you know, enough of the league that they could influence the rule book. And they rewrote the rule books that, so that that particular team, uh, you know, got uh, six, six uh, downs <laughs> rather than yeah. three or four. Um, you know, they would have an advantage and they would end up basically owning everything. That's what has happened with regard to business in the United States, which takes us back to the rule book. You know, who writes the rule book? Well, government writes the rule book theoretically on behalf of the people. But, you know, government has been seized in large part because of a couple of Supreme Court decisions in the 70s that said that when billionaires or corporations want to own politicians, that's considered free speech. That's not considered bribery or corruption. And so here we have literally the only power on earth that can constrain a trillion dollar corporation, which is government there. You know, you can't do it. I can't do it. You know, my city can't do it. My state can't do it. The government can do it. They, they can say, okay, you may do this. You may not do that. And, and so as a result of that in the seventies and, and, and through the early eighties, I mean, this was what Reagan said in his first inaugural address on January 20th, 1980, government is not the solution to your problems. Government itself is the problem. Well, that's something that only a monopolist would say. That's something that only a billionaire would say. That's something that only somebody who's a shill for giant corporations would say, because the one power on earth the giant corporations fear is a government that's answerable to the people rather than to, to the corporations. And that was Reagan introducing America to the fact that he was bringing in a whole brand new economic and political system. Uh, we call it Reaganomics, that we have been operating under for 40 years that gut, gutted the American middle class, right. that, that uh, you know, fewer than half of Americans are even in the middle class any longer. It was around two-thirds at that time in 1980. Unionization, one-third of Americans had a union job, and another third had a similar uh, you know, benefit structure and pay structure as a union job because the union job set the floor. That was two-thirds of America in 1980. Um, you know, it's now 6%. Um, it, and all that wealth that was earned by these corporations prior to 1980, as corporations became more profitable, as workers became more productive, that productivity was matched by increases in workers' pay. All the way back to the, to the late 1870s, you can, you can track this. It's a, pretty much a straight line with the exception of the, of the Republican Great Depression of, 19, of the, 1929. And, and, uh, and it recovered after the Great Depression, after Franklin Roosevelt put the country back together. So what we have here is a situation where the one constraining force on monopoly, on, on corporate misbehavior and basically ownership of us has been corrupted and co-opted by the Supreme Court, which is why my last book was about the Supreme right. Court or the second book was about the Supreme Court. And 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 the result of all of that is that, you know, we've we've, we've the rule book has been changed. I mean, we're now in a world where, you know, Pick your favorite, uh, you know, NFL team. That one team, basically, or or that team with two or three friends, uh, two or three other teams, basically took the whole damn thing over, and they're milking it all for their own benefit. And to hell with the players, to hell with the fans, uh, to hell, you know, they're not even paying the damn rent on the stadium. You know, they're just taking everything. And that's the state of of business in America right now. And this is so. So you're talking about Reaganomics, and you insert. Uh, you insert midway through your book, Robert Bork. Speak a little yeah. bit about Robert Bork. Sure. Bork was, uh, he was first uh, trained as an economist uh, on his way to law school, and that was uh, at the Chicago uh, School of Economics, where he was a student of Milton Friedman. And uh, this was back in the 50s and 60s. And Milton Friedman, uh, you know, he just loved Friedman. And and Friedman had this idea that the that the monopoly laws were unnecessarily complex. Uh, the the notion that we had about business at that point in time in the 1950s and 60s, and 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 frankly had had since the founding of the republic, was that a corporation has a number of constituencies. It has uh, it has to answer to its community, the community in which it it exists. 
Uh, it has to answer to its customers. It's got to have you know decent products and stand behind them. It has to answer to its employees. It has to have certain standards of behavior with regard to its employees. Um, it, and it has to and it has to answer to the institution of the corporation itself. It has to work for its own preservation. And then you know finally it has to answer to its stockholders. Well, Friedman said, screw all that. It really should just be the stockholders. The stockholders should be making all the decisions. They should call all the shots. Uh, you want the uh, the executives in a corporation to stop thinking as if they care about the corporation or the community or the employees or even the customers. To hell with all them. It's all about the ownership class, the stockholders, the billionaires. And, uh, you know, Reagan adopted that um, in the 1980s. But uh, Reagan also tried to put Robert Bork on the Supreme Court, which is when we discovered that he hated gay people and, and black people um, and was just a very weird man. Um, but. He had been lobbying. He had taken this mantle of Milton Friedman with regard to monopoly law and wrote a book about it, had testified before Congress dozens of times, um, worked for a bunch of different think tanks, had all kinds of articles published, was on a one-man 20-year crusade to change the, the way that our monopoly laws were enforced. And at one point in the 70s, in the late 70s, the Supreme Court even uh, you know, tipped their hat to him in a case called GTE Sylvania. And said, well, maybe we really should just be looking at shareholder value and, 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 and whether prices go up or down to the consumer. That, that should be, you know, his, his whole thing was, you know, it, it should just depend. It's a monopoly if prices go up. That was his bottom line. And, and, and therefore, the corporation can devote all their other efforts to the stockholders. And uh, that's, that's what Reagan ratified. I mean, he, he basically put that into policy. Now, the laws are still in the books. And the Supreme Court could change their mind or Congress could even overrule that decision fairly easily, that GTE Sylvania decision. But right now, you know, we have not in 40 years had a president who was willing to roll back Reaganomics. We haven't gone back above 50 percent for the top marginal tax rate. We haven't, you know, uh, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, one third of all the revenue into the federal coffers was corporate income tax. Right now it's around 7 percent. Um, you know, we've, we haven't changed that. Uh, we haven't, and, and we haven't started enforcing again the antitrust laws, and we need to. If we don't, I think that it's going to get real ugly. So, okay, so it's already real ugly. Yeah, so you're talking about enforcing an antitrust. Is let's take for instance Microsoft, or uh, we can use them interchange interchangeably, but only to a degree. Um, or Facebook, are, are either one of those companies, in your view, are are, are they are these monopolies? Sure. I mean, you know, the main strategy that Rockefeller used that got him into trouble was buying up competitors or running them out of business or threatening to run them out of business and then buying them for a song. That's how he went from having one small oil company to owning more than 90 percent of all the oil uh, properties and production in Ohio and Pennsylvania uh, in less than 15 years. I mean, it was just massive. And that's exactly what Facebook does. That's how they got Instagram, for example, all, although there's a hundred smaller programs that have been integrated into Facebook over the years. Um, you know, that's what Apple has been doing. They control both the hardware and the software. Um, Microsoft, to a large extent, is doing the same thing. You've got European regulators, as I mentioned earlier, you know, in Europe, most people are not paying the average person, the average European is not paying a $5,000 a year extra as a as a monopoly fee to these corporations because the monopolies are largely disempowered or broken up. And, you know, they're taking a serious look at these guys, um, you know, Amazon and, and Alphabet as well. Yeah. But you know, we'll see how it shakes out. Yeah. And I think that the uh, the, the value of. Uh, the tech industry uh, during uh, during the COVID nineteen lockdown has really skyrocketed. Let let, let me throw something out here for you, Tom. Uh, Nineteen seventy one, uh, Richard Nixon abolished the gold standard. Um, I'm trying to tie this into a monopoly for listeners, um, but I want to get your reaction on why he did that, and was that was that effective, and was that good for for American economics? Uh, Nixon did that because the United States economy was growing like a weed. I mean, you know, post-World War II, we had the fastest e economic growth of pretty much any major nation in the history of the world. And uh, the problem with the gold standard is if you've got, you know, a, a, a trillion dollars in circulation and that currency is backed by gold, you've got to have a trillion dollars worth of gold in Fort Knox sure. to back it. 
And so if your economy grows 20 percent over a five year period and ours was, you know, we had four percent annual growth through the 60s. Um, if your economy grows 20 percent, uh, then you've got to have 20 percent more gold. And that is a huge drain on the Treasury because you stockholders, I mean, excuse me, uh, taxpayers have to yep. put the money in to buy that gold. And gold is not productive. And if your economy shrinks, you got to be selling gold. And frankly, our economy, I mean, the projections in, in the 70s of, uh, or even the late 60s when this, this really got underway in, the, in probably 66, 67, um, the projections were that by the mid-1980s, the economy would grow beyond the available gold supply of the world. I mean, you know, I mean, we would have to start, you know, aggressively mining and buying from other countries who didn't want to sell to us because they were on the gold standard, too. And, and the price of gold was, had been fixed um, and that that was causing all kinds of problems. You know, Roosevelt tried to deal with that. And it, it was just a mess. The, the, the gold standard was something that stabilized currencies in the 1700s, the 16, 17 and 1800s, largely because counterfeiting was so easy. Counterfeiting currency was so easy back then. And there had to be some way to establish the value of currency. But by the 1940s and 50s, we had developed technologies to make it really, really hard to counterfeit our currency. And nobody was doubting the value of an individual bill or, you know, of, of a pile of bills. And so, uh, you know, Nixon's position was this is just no longer necessary. And it wasn't really. So you've got a quote here that's pretty interesting. If we look at, and again, I, 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 the, 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 the end game, of course, is to address what listeners can do, obviously, to uh, hold on to those democratic values that best represent uh, the majority. But 1792, you've got a quote here from James Madison, uh, and he says, the, well, the, the racial wealth of monopoly is, is, is how you, 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 you lead into this. And, and, and the quote is, that is not a just government, nor is property secure under it, where arbitrary restrictions, exemptions, and monopolies, again, this is Jane Madison using this word, monopolies, deny to part of its citizens that free use of their faculties and free choice of their occupations which not only constitute their property in the general sense of the word, but are their means of acquiring property strictly so-called. Expand on that a little bit, Tom. What exactly is Madison getting at here? Well, he was expressing a, a common sentiment at the time. Um, Madison, uh, of course, brought brought together the the uh, the people in Philadelphia in, in 1787 to write the Constitution. He's referred to as the father of the Constitution. He kept the notes from the Constitutional Convention and did they weren't published until 50 years later, which was his agreement with everybody. Everybody was dead by the time they were published. That was the deal. And and uh, he he was Jefferson's protege. And so, you know, they got together through the summer and early fall of 1787. And in November, Madison took the first copy of the Constitution and mailed it to France, where Thomas Jefferson was living as a U.S. envoy to France, and said, what do you think, boss? You know, Jefferson lived down the road from Madison. They'd been lifelong friends. Madison was 20 years younger, and he was sort of Jefferson's protege. And Jefferson wrote him back this long letter in which he said, you know, I really like this division of government into three parts and the division of the legislative branch into two parts and the checks and balances. And, you know, he goes through everything he likes. And then he says, and now I will tell you what I do not like. And he says, what I do not like is that there is not an explicit bill of rights that says that the press shall be free, religion shall be free. Um, that uh, there, there should be a right to privacy. He used slightly different language because they didn't use the word privacy back then. Uh, to say I want privacy was what people said when they wanted to use the outhouse. Uh -huh. the word privy. <laughs> um, so that's why you won't find the word privacy anywhere in, in, among the founders because when, you know, privacy literally meant use the toilet. But in any case... <laughs> Um, so Jefferson, you know, and, and so Jefferson basically went through the stuff that is in today's Bill of Rights, you know, a, a, a right of trial by jury, et cetera. And included in his list was an, a, a, an absolute ban on commercial monopolies. 
And, uh, and then Jefferson continued to send a whole series of letters over the next year and a half <laughs> As the as the Constitution was being debated to all kinds of American politicians, basically lobbying them for a ban on monopolies in commerce in the Constitution as part of the Bill of Rights. Wow. At the at the end of the day, Jefferson got everything he wanted except two. He, he wanted a, a ban on standing armies. And the closest he got to that was the Second Amendment, which was designed to have state militias replace standing armies during times of peace. And the ban on commercial monopolies, which just was completely eliminated uh, because nobody thought it was necessary. They had just successfully fought a war against the British East India Company and the British government. The, the, you know, the, the, the Boston Tea Party of 1773 was fought because England gave a massive tax cut to the East India Company that allowed them to, to put small tea dealers in up and down the east coast of, of the colonies out of business. And... You know, and so, you know, it was a Walmart kind of move, and the and the and the, and the colonists said no to hell with that, and uh, they just didn't think that America would ever tolerate monopolies. They didn't think they had to write it into the Constitution. And like I said, we didn't. You know, they were dead a hundred years before we before we saw a serious monopoly in the United States. Okay, so so why 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 was it a century that 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 America didn't see a monopolistic practice? And what changed? I think largely because America was an agricultural nation, because we were so spread out over such a large continent, because there was uh, such an emphasis in the in the Constitution on state power, on state states having power as opposed to the federal government, and because up until the 1890s, every single state in the Union had corporate charter laws. That required corporations, as their articles of incorporation uh, stated, to uh, the first purpose of incorporation had to be to uh, promote the interests or protect the interests of the citizens of the state. And corporations, thousands of corporations a year, were killed off. They were given the corporate death penalty because every secretary of state in uh, every state, every one or two years, depending on the state, had to examine the books of every corporation doing business in those states. And, uh, you know, Rockefeller was the guy who made sure that all this got ruined in the 1890s during the charter mongering era. But basically that that was those were the the, the immune systems against monopoly of our nation. Um, they started breaking down in the 1880s because of the Industrial Revolution and because there were mostly because there were certain things that could only be done at scale. You know, you could manufacture rifles or you could manufacture clothing or you could manufacture um, you know, uh, houses or whatever, you know, on a relatively small scale. But if you wanted to make a railroad car, if you wanted to build a railroad, if you wanted to build an oil refinery, you had to do that at scale. You had to have a really large corporation to be able to do that, to, to be able to pull all the resources together and, and everything else. And so the Industrial Revolution and the rise of monopoly were kind of like chicken and egg. Interesting. Very interesting, Tom. Uh, main point here, I think, for listeners is that monopoly and the practice thereof has been an issue that this country uh, has been fighting since its inception. That, that, that sounds like Literally. it would be. An, go ahead. Literal. Literally. Uh, you know, like I said, the Boston Tea Party was a was a battle against the East India Company, and the East India Company provided you know, the resources for the British Army. I mean, we were fighting the East India Company as much as we fought the British Army in the American wow. Revolution. And, and, and let me, you know, let me, let me say this uh, for, for an, another way to look at it, um, for those listening out there, you know, e even though the United States, we, we've had our history with monopolies, and thank goodness you've written this book, Tom, but um, if we look at a neighbor to the south, Mexico, uh, there's another form of monopoly that, that I would consider a monopoly, and that's the basis upon which that country was founded, which was a combination of church and state. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, churches try are, are, are monopolizers on religion. You know, the, the sure. Catholic Church would be very happy if the Protestant churches of the world just went away, for example. <laughs> right. Yeah, or absolutely. Or I suppose. Now, how does America, how do Americans move forward? Um, how do we, um, you know, how do we, uh, uh, how do we move forward and, and keep uh, those checks and balances? I mean, we've got, 
we, look, I've, I've never seen, in my lifetime, I've never seen any, any, any political frying pan as hot as it is today. We've got a clear divide, it seems. Uh, and, and now it's, now we've got, you know, we've got people, uh, mobs, it seems, attacking uh, the opposition, Trump versus Biden, uh, Republican versus Democrat. My personal feeling, Tom, is that both the parties have enough corruption. I think they're both uh, weeds. Uh, and, 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 and I try to, on my shows, I try to get listeners to uh, do their best to uphold constitutional inalienable rights and constitutional values um, uh, and, and not necessarily side with uh, political parties. And, and one example of that would be uh, Robert F. Kennedy, not Kennedy Jr., not sure if you've been following him, but he's given his whole spiel on what he thinks the economic ramifications are uh, globally in regards to this COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, and those would be fairly uh, different from his constituents in, in, in the Democratic Party. Um, you know, we can call, we can, we can bring out different, uh, uh, different examples of, uh, of uh, Andrew Jackson, for instance, was a Democrat in 1844. He ran on uh, the re-election platform to, uh, to literally kill the banks. Um, and, um, and then we've got Abraham Lincoln, uh, right, who's uh, sticking, up for, uh, sticking up for racial equality during the Civil War. Um, I mean, and that's debatable, but uh, he's a Republican, right? And then JFK, of course, uh, a Democrat. So uh, regardless of the party, I think the two of them flip-flop and, and the two of them mesh and, and mix. Uh, let's, again, the, the question is, uh, let's look at Americans. What can Americans do to, um, to keep, keep a, a level playing field uh, in, that, in, in that conceptually... Uh, realizing that any type of monopoly, any type of business that grows so large that they begin gobbling up their competitors and therefore squashing and uh, and squelching the, the the growth of, of of the middle class or expansion of the middle middle class, and we see that happening in in the U.S. today uh, at a ridiculous rate. Really, I think it seems that the middle class is, is certainly uh, shrinking. Um, how how do Americans? What can Americans do to uh, uh, to restrict that, to, 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 to again, uh, 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 keep that level playing field? I think step one is to educate people about, uh, A, the fact that uh, America was birthed in opposition to monopoly, um, B, that monopoly is corrosive and destructive, not only to the average person and to their lives and, and their security, but also to the, to the capitalist system, you know, to the extent that you may like that uh, as a whole. And see that that uh, Reaganism, trickle down economics, whatever you want to call it, neoliberalism, um, is ahistoric. It's it's it, it, it's not consistent with history. Um, it is it, it is trying to harken back to the Gilded Age, and that was a very destructive time in America's history. And uh, and and by supporting monopoly, I mean when Reagan in '82 declared that he was no longer enforcing the antitrust laws. There was, you know, ask anybody who was alive at the time, there was an explosion of what was called M&A activity, mergers and acquisitions. Michael Milken declared himself oh, wow. master of the universe, the M&A king. And, and these guys, they were, you know, tearing companies apart and ripping their guts out of them and slamming them together without regard to the employees, the, the community, the, the corporation itself or the customers. I mean, it was just like it was an orgy. And we're still there. This is still going on. And uh, so, you know, we need people need to realize that that, you know, what Reagan did with Robert Bork's help and encouragement and, uh, you know, has been extraordinarily destructive, not just to average working people, but right across the board at every level to our political, to our body politic. It's corrupted our body politic in the ways that you just described. Uh, It has corrupted our economy itself. And it is establishing a, a lousy foundation for the future. The hidden history of monopolies, how big business destroyed the American dream. Uh, Tom Hartman has written a New York Times bestseller. He's written over 25 books. Uh, again, the forward is by Ralph Nader. Uh, Tom, what's next for you in the installment of the series? Uh, the next book, which will be out next spring and just went to typesetting, is the hidden history of uh, oligarchy and tyranny, how fascism wow. rises in America. Wow. Great stuff, great stuff. Any any closing comments, Tom? Um, how are you holding up during this COVID-19 uh, pandemic? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing fine, Ian. You know, <laughs> we, we all kind of discover our 
our uh, places where we can have uh, you know some peace and quiet and rhythm and yeah it's a, it's real interesting it's a complete recalibration of life I'm, I'm i'm guessing that you're experiencing the same thing um i uh yes uh i have not been in florida uh so i've i've been remote and out of state and where i physically am actually um you know life has been fairly normal for me tom uh uh, the, the, uh, the mask issue has not been, it's certainly a debate where I'm at, but it's not been enforced. So I frankly typically choose not to wear a mask. Uh, and, uh, and there are many like-minded folks, uh, that, 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 do that as well. It just happens to be where I am geographically, where there's not a dense uh, population um, that that would require uh, enforcement of that of that mandate. Um, but you know, I've 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 also looked at I've also looked at again some of these uh, uh, these economic ramifications, and I've and I've looked at Catherine Austin Fitz, um, uh, who. Uh, uh, I believe is a uh, uh, Wharton grad. Uh, did some uh, linguistics uh, studies at Yale, and uh, did some advising uh, the White House. Uh, may have been actually under Reagan. I'm not sure about that uh, or the Bush. Um, and she's, you know, she's talking about um, she's talking about the implication uh, of digital currency and how that can drastically change uh, change things as a result of the pandemic. So. Um, yeah, but for the most part, thanks for asking, Tom. For the most part, life's been um, been fairly normal for me. Um, but uh, but again, I've uh, I just I have been outside of Florida and Miami, uh, going remotely. So I I, I uh, haven't lived in that dense a dense populated uh, uh, location. Um, anyway, that's that's me, um, Tom. Thanks for joining the program. Uh, any closing uh, any closing comments on on monopolies? Yeah, well, spread the word. I mean, you know, we yeah. need to wake up as many people as possible. Nothing happens without public opinion, and this is a topic that has not really been discussed in any meaningful way since the 1970s when the AT&T breakup was underway. Excellent. Looking forward to uh, having you rejoin the program. Uh, Tom, keep up the great work, and uh, talk to you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Hartman. Thanks, Ian. Great being with you. That was Tom's third time, I believe, joining the program, and a wonderful, uh, wonderful guest he is each every time, each and every time on the program. Again, he's written a New York Times bestseller. He's authored over twenty-five books. Uh, the forward on this book: uh, repeat the title, "The Hidden History of Monopolies: How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream." I mean, I mean, think about it, folks. Big business destroyed the American dream. Look at look at Walmart. You know, Tom, Tom mentioned the name. Look at Walmart and compare Walmart to your mom and pop grocery stores. Okay. Ask yourself, do you personally know a business that has gone under during this pandemic? Do you personally know a local grocer that can no longer pay his rent and had to fold? Companies like Walmart, you can you, you can you can go. Uh, Costco would be another one, right? Big box retailers drive out when they drive out your mom and pop stores, your local stores. You got to think to yourself. You got to remind yourself. All that is doing is killing the middle class and folks when this middle class dissolves you have no more power you the people have no more power so looking forward to having Tom back on the program um, wanted to mention one other thing uh, before I go oh don't ever in my opinion don't ever allow anyone or any group thinking to limit 
your mental processing. Whereas what I'm saying is you are an individual. You have a brain. Allow that brain to work, function, think, move in ways that it was designed to perform. And don't let anyone ever limit the abilities of the function of the brain that you possess. And with that said, don't ever let anyone limit the abilities of words that can come out of your mouth. Be kind, be gentle, use effective words when necessary, but do not let anyone limit the words that can come out of your mouth. Next week, folks, J.P. Lindstroth rejoining the program. And we'll be hearing from J.P. his views on Black Lives Matter. It'll be nice to have J.P. rejoin the program. It's been probably six weeks. And until then... Folks, be awesome.